another episode of the Going Rogue Gaming Podcast, the Grog Pod. Uh, I am your uh, Grog Potter in chief, Scott Berger, and I'm joined with my my Rogues Gallery here, Grog Grog Podling Colin Smith. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. That was a will. Uh, and today we uh, and in this podcast, uh, if this is your first time listening, we're uh, looking at somewhere around the the top hundred ish uh, roguelike games. Uh, each per like breaking them out kind of by year and we're uh we're as as dictated by our uh mystical and never wrong uh, computer algorithm that has Truly shot powerful. these recommend that has shot these recommendations out to us um and uh and we're we're gonna talk about them or we're gonna complain and we're gonna uh learn a lot about game development history and uh why why it was so hard back then um and before before we jump in today's uh slate of episodes uh, the algorithm has has recommended us to start uh, at this year in the year 2012, which I think we're gonna we're gonna come to the conclusion that game design has kind of come a long way since here, uh, <laughs> and and uh, the fact that this genre of games is extremely indie at this stage uh, comes with uh, pluses and minuses. Uh, we were very blessed with our first two episodes of Dungeons of Dreadmore and Binding of Isaac. To have two very well established, um, very uh, polished, I guess, games um, that have kind of really set a, a tone and standard at the time. Um, as we move year by year uh, through the through the decade of this uh, rise of roguelikes, uh, we'll we'll kind of see this uh, pattern mature and crystallize a little bit as to people when you know they figure out what a roguelike is and what are good and bad design principles for it. But the algorithm is to, has dictated today for us to play uh, three games from 2012, and uh, those games are Hack Slash Loot, A Valley Without Wind, and Pineapple Smash Crew. Uh, I think is kind of maybe a primer for you know 2012 uh, after the world had ended. Uh, Steam at this time was was still a big deal to get on. And the all these games released prior to to Steam Greenlight, which is a now uh, shelved feature of Steam that uh, was basically people voting on whether or not if they wanted this game to show up on the platform or not. Which, which as I think we all know, with community voting stuff comes with pluses and minuses about how that can be gamed and all that. But uh, Steam Greenlight came out in July of 2012 of this year. But all these games came out. See beforehand, uh, and so all of these were kind of a big deal to even get on the Steam distribution platform to begin with. Um, and as another kind of primer before we before we jump into our slate of games uh, today, this might be a um, uh, an all devs go to heaven episode where I think the three of us recognize that game development is is a hard and laborious enterprise, uh, and it's okay for for people not to like a video game. Uh, but game design, like we said, has kind of come a long way since. Uh, I think we'll learn a lot about like the tools people were using at the time and uh, and how that kind of influences and maybe even limits their their game design to some degree. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think for for any criticism we level at the games themselves, unless the devs really deserve it, and maybe we'll drill into that in future episodes, uh, I think we can kind of all get behind that uh, you know the people putting putting their hard work into these games. Uh, we're not dunking on them specifically, but it's okay for us to, you know, criticize the product. You can make a bad game but still be a perfectly good person. 
Yes. I don't know about that. I mean, ooh, that's uh, that's tough to say. I don't know if this distinction is required here. I think you, you have a shitty game. You're probably a shitty person. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, I definitely wouldn't want someone to judge my moral quality based off of my my <laughs> past work performance. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's very true. Will's offering up his uh, his R code uh, to the community to be judging by his moral principles, I'm guessing. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so let's jump into it. First game uh, that we're talking about today is Hack Slash Loot, uh, released April 5th, 2012, uh, released on Windows, Mac, and Linux, and later in 2014 for iOS and Android. Uh, and this is the 458th most popular roguelike game on Steam with 713 reviews, topping it out in the 86th percentile of, of roguelikes. Uh, Wait, so there are 86... 86- this is there. Eighty six percent of roguelikes are less good than this game. No, obviously are are less are less um, highly reviewed. I should say, or are, are less uh, popular. So okay, this, so okay. that number Have comes less from reviews. the reviews. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is again a kind of shocking uh, uh, pointer to say that like there's a ton of roguelike games out there. Like that's and that's the ranking specifically for games that have roguelike tags on Steam. So there's you know like we kind of said in previous episodes like 5000 of them you wouldn't believe how many how much of that data set which you can find on the website uh has uh like basically no reviews you know people kind of releasing games out into the void and you know for various reasons having to do with like marketing and a saturated field and all that um people just not getting eyeballs on them and and a lot of recency bias too like i would guess the numbers are in there, I'm, I'm sure, but I would guess like half of all roguelikes have been released in the past couple years or so. Yeah, like that. I mean, it's also gotten so, so much easier to make a game that is playable enough to go on Steam. Maybe not a great game, but you can get it on Steam at least. Yeah. Uh, so this is Hack Slash Loot. Uh, is a, a top-down pixelated uh turn-based i guess i would lump this into the traditional roguelike category uh sounds right yeah you know you're 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 moving around uh in grids you're finding tombs you're picking up uh it, it this is a game that i think really does what it says on the tin you hack enemies you slash them and you loot stuff uh you also blast them with magic or arrows, but that's basically the same thing. Yeah. Uh, this game was developed by David Williamson, who is a uh, independent game developer from Manchester in England. Uh, and he has, uh, he used to run a podcast, I believe that is, has not been running for a little while, but you can still find it uh, online called Pig Ignorant Gamers. I think we can kind of relate to some of that. Uh, but he's also released a whole bunch of like really tiny uh, indie games on his itch.io uh, site, oddball.itch.io, which I was I was kind of curious to to dink around in to see like oh what what other kind of games have he had he developed? And Will, you might find his uh, his street chess game a little interesting. Uh, it's a it's a chess variant game where all moves are real time, so you can you can go and just like you know move your pawns up and immediately capture someone's bishop in like five seconds. Oh no, Will hates real time. <laughs> what? This is chaos. This is madness. I don't support this at all. 
the anti-beard scratching 20, 20 days per uh, I want I want a game of chess where the board is like the size of a football field and how fast or how well you play dictate is dictated by like how fast you can physically move the pieces across this board. <laughs> you're just you're carrying up, putting yeah, they're, like, back. they're like 50 pound giant pieces you have to drag across <laughs> the field. The true meaning of bronze and brain in this hybrid game, Colin. This is brilliant stuff. Uh, David Williamson, he got his uh, programming start uh, in the mid 80s on a Commodore C16 PUS slash four, which I have no clue what that is. Uh, it, it, I'm guessing that's one of those, you know, ye oldie systems, but I was amazed that uh, he was saying that it came bundled with like 20 games with it, which is kind of astounding. But um, I'm guessing back then, you know, the, the aspect of programming games into a, an, I guess I'm a little more familiar with the Commodore 64. Do either of you have much experience with the, that era of gaming at all? That's like when keyboards were first invented or mice were first invented. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I don't have any experience with that, but I, I feel like my most relevant experience is like trying to program games on my graphing calculator in high school because I was too bored to do anything else. And, you know, you get like Pong and shit on there. Yeah, you didn't even have the, the QWERTY keyboard with your, what did you have, 86, 89? Well, know. no one had your, your full QWERTY <laughs> keyboard. You weren't even allowed to use it on tests. Hey, I did until they caught me. <laughs> uh, but no, I think in conclusion, I don't I don't really, yeah, Commodore is, yeah. I think, before any of our time. Right. Um, but yeah, I think he he wound up getting his start programming on those those very early gaming systems. Um, and he had been a hobbyist game maker for years. Uh, and when, but you know, the, like distribution and release at the time, very hard to do to a very wide audience. Uh, and at the time, Humble Bundle, I think, you know, I'd forgotten this actually, but the, the Humble Bundle uh, platform was was pretty good at like kind of releasing these, these you know, micro tiny indie games. Um, so that gave that gave Williamson a, a good uh, platform along with Steam to be able to publish a game, quote unquote, for real. Uh, and he was he was saying it was kind of a nightmare to release on Steam back in 2012. But um, but their staff were actually kind of helpful with getting him through the process, which sort of doesn't surprise me. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of speaks to to volumes. And I guess we'll we'll come to this in a in a little bit for our, our later games. But. Um, yeah, like releasing games back then was not a trivial process. Uh, Williamson said that uh, he was heavily influenced uh, in the development of Hackslash Loot by Colin. Do you know the the um, the tabletop game Eye of the Beholder at all? Um, I've heard of it, but not played. Ooh, sorry. No, I have this backwards. Eye of the Beholder was a uh, what is it? It was a an old timey like turn-based game. If you find like screenshots or video of it, you can very clearly see like the influence to to Hackslash Loot with like parts of like inventory management and grid-based movement and stuff like that. Um, but he was he heavily influenced by that and tabletop D&D, which also kind of doesn't surprise me to some degree of, you know, this being a very uh, classic um type of game where you have your your standard classes of like warrior archer mage and you're kind of going around dungeons and just like beating up monsters and getting you know more loot DD is obviously more involved and complicated than that but you can kind of see where the aesthetic 
uh, inspiration came from. Uh, he says in a, in a quote, uh, he'd been laid off shortly before working on Hackslash Loot, so it was pretty easy to, to keep a normal work routine, but keep working on his game. Um, the things that used to make the initial release were a broken laptop, Blitz Max, and Photoshop elements. Uh, I did receive a lot of help from fellow indie developers, though. The indie dev community was probably the most helpful tool I used during development. Um, which is, you know, a, a thing that we'll probably see as this podcast goes on of like this kind of collaborative, uh, helpful um, community of people that are really, you know, willing to help out with these kinds of things. Um, Williamson, I was, I reached out to him for, uh, for some, some of these quotes because some of these really niche indie games are incredibly hard to track down for like, how was this game developed? What were sort of the challenges involved? Um, and we'll put that up on the website grogpod.zone uh, for you to read in, in more depth. Uh, but yeah, we were able to get a um, some really great comments from from David Williamson uh, as well as our uh, Hackslash Loot developer, which we'll get to in a second. Story in this game. Uh, how would we describe the story? There's there's like six different quests that you can go on. Um, but for me, I didn't really know that there was like I didn't get the sense that there was really much of a difference between them. Yeah, I know Will got further than I did. Is there any story by the time you get to the end of it? Or is it just um, you get better at, is the story getting better at hacking and slashing? Yeah, it's, it's very, I feel like it's very episodic and separate. Like, I, I don't know if there was, maybe I missed something, but I didn't see anything like, like linking the worlds together other than like you're doing kind of like similar things. You're either going up or down i don't remember if it was up and down all the they're kind of blending together now but like you you're beating a floor you're going up you're making the only real strategy there was just like do you clear the entire floor or not so i don't know like it, it didn't seem like there was much of a narrative that was driving everything on one um uh within one complete story there's kind of a preamble like there's six different <clears throat> quests quote unquote that you can do but i guess like are different sort of uh, tile themes to the dungeons, as far as I yeah. can tell. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, it's like go go into the dungeon and go like rescue the princess or the you know the small boy, and they all have like different difficulty ratings to them. Which this game is like maybe the most difficult game I've ever played. What? <laughs> uh, really? I don't know. Like, I think the. Uh, so I picked, I picked, there was one of these, um, I think it's Mask of the Boy King was one of the quests. That I oh yeah, that that's, one. that's the only one I finished. Was that like the very easy one? I forget. I don't recall what level that was. Um, but anyway, I wound up picking like the one that was the very easiest because I'm like, yeah, I just want to like see what, what this game has to offer. And I don't know, I must have been like a bludgeoned in the, to death in the first like five moves of this game, like 50% of the time. Wow. Are you trying to like open up these crypts and immediately fight these high level like skeletons that come out? Because that's well, the, you, you do that a couple of times. Yeah. You open up some crypts and you're like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Okay. These are treasure chests, but they hurt you every time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess there's a risk reward element, but uh, my, my playthroughs, I think I was just like, what does this do? What does this do? And kind of like clicking on everything and oh yeah. Okay. That'll kill you. So I got the, the sense really fast that literally everything in this game will kill you. Yeah. I mean, that was also my sense uh and also just that you didn't have a particularly large array of strategies to avoid being killed uh you, 
choke point indoor was like my only strategy. Yep. Uh, and then just kind of hack and hope. And, like, and do some slashing too. I mean, the hacking, and, and you do loot. some hoping, you do some slashing. But I think you're right, Colin. It, it, it's basically like doorways. Everything is like only one thing can fit down a uh, corridor, for instance. And if a corridor is one uh, sort of unit wide, you can just, where their numbers count for nothing, you can kind of just wait for them. But um, so that's one strategy. The only other strategy I found somewhat useful, and this is after like a few hours of play, is once you find the exit to a floor, it's not useful, I think, to just like immediately go up because you want to, you know, get all the loot for that floor. And so what you'll do is you'll you'll go search around, you'll find something that's going to absolutely fuck you up that you can't fight, and then you just flee to the exit. And they because this <laughs> this game does not have like uh, units cannot cross floors except for you. You could just have a safe escape. And so that's really all it is: is you find a safe escape for when you take on too much. I did find there were another kind of. A uh, frustrating element for me was running around this dungeon, or it was a different. It was a different quest because there, there were, was it the same quest? I don't know. That like, uh, wall, like, uh, ghosts moving through walls, just ruined so many runs. Right. Yeah. No. That, that was uh, the mission where you actually start with allies. So it seems like super useful. They're all helping you, uh... but as soon as they die, they turn into a ghost, <laughs> and the ghost right. has the property of going through walls. Uh-huh. Uh, or it really sucks to get like when you have enemies coming at you like that. There's an ability you can actually get the that ability and travel through walls as an as a perk, which is an insta win game. I think that's uh-huh. the only time I won was like when I got the that ability through something. I think there's there's an interesting element in this game about how like this game really suits um, a category of roguelikes called coffee break roguelikes, which are games that are like designed to be played in. I would say like less than 10 minutes or like less than 15 minutes of, of game time. Um, <laughs> at least it felt like for me that the main kind of through line to this was play a lot, die a lot. And by dying, that's how you unlock new characters. There's there's a very um, sparse, but actually kind of interestingly useful wiki for this game that details yeah. uh, like h- how many deaths you need to unlock certain uh, character classes. And what's surprising is it doesn't it doesn't go up linearly. Like you don't get a new unlock like every 10 deaths. It's like after 10 deaths, you get a new unlock. And then after like 12 deaths, you get another one. And then after like it's like the square. It's yeah. like every everything that is a perfect square root. So like 9, 16, 25, 36. Wait, what do you unlock? I just never died then. The, I just so good at this game. I just uh you unlock there's like 12 characters 12 no no no. There, yeah. there's a there's way more than that there's like well because there's characters um and then there's classes on top of that so there's a bunch of different unlocks which i think is is kind of it's kind of a shame that you don't get to see that faster because i was like you know the like the new characters that you unlock are very different than previous ones and i think they kind of help to spice up the gameplay but it just takes so many so many deaths and i feel like dying in this game is super unpleasant where it's just like, I mean, oh. I, I also say that, like, I I wanted to get and experience, like, a new character or two. So I just played as the wizard and just tried to charge things and then die immediately. <laughs> it's like, well, how fast can I die? Like, got to get to that, like, 16 deaths or whatever. It's like, all right. Is there a counter like, for this that I didn't notice that tells you until your next unlock how many deaths you need? It yeah, doesn't. Like, I didn't realize this is a dynamic. Oh, no, I guess this is a couple on, of weeks ago for me, but. 
there's it's like a counter on the main screen just how many times you died yeah oh okay it doesn't say uh deaths until next unlock and yeah. that, i think that would be another good hook in terms of like okay why should i why should i keep being frustrated dying oh this really cool minotaur is gonna unlock if i die five more times so i'll go in and just like literally like you know this game was was actually kind of fun to play on my steam deck while my like code was compiling for 15 minutes because i would just like boot it up like die five times to random bullshit and then i'd be like oh i unlocked a, a knight oh that's kind of cool i'll play around with this guy for a little bit but um other other interesting things that so you start off with three standard classes a human saracen a woodland elf archer and a human wizard and things that you can unlock include a human knight a human amazon a pixie mage a human ninja a skeleton lich knight which sounds pretty cool uh, a human pirate a titan arbiter uh, which i have no no clue that is uh an eye terror tormentor uh a centaur noble and thing things of that kind of uh that kind of ilk and i think a lot of them are just like strictly better yeah like not it's just, not like uh putting points in different spots it's like just starts with more hp and more attack yeah, this is all news to me. I only remember seeing the knight, and I thought I it came with that because I ne there was no like, hey, and congratulations, you got this new. It was just a oh, hey, look at that one. I didn't I see that you one. You get before. the knight very quickly. Yeah, and so that's yeah, after that's, ten deaths or something. I mean, this is a class. This is a uh, a game mechanic or components. Uh, just uh, dangling, just like expose what you want them to drive for in front of them, but don't give it to them until they complete whatever you're requiring. And it's just yeah. like that's an obvious thing. No offense to uh, yeah. game designers. Like, yeah. We've known about that since the '80s. Come on, I feel man. Like, I don't like that it was it rewards death. I think that it should be like based off floors gained or something like that. Because I mean, mm. I I ground dying. That's not like a fun gameplay loop. It's like, well, I want to see next character. Better just like die as fast as I can a couple of yeah. times. Like, and it isn't yeah. reward you're not rewarded for playing well you're rewarded for playing badly and with the benefit of of 10 years of game design after this i think we'll see how how other kind of progression systems have learned these lessons about like you know unlocking characters from small events that occur within the dungeon or unlocking characters based on like doing objectives or collecting certain things or like buying their freedom from the shopkeeper or something um, yeah i mean a lot of them are just like do a thing that's similar to the character like play us play in a style that is similar to the character and then you get the the next character that starts with that style yeah. i mean that was that was binding of isaac right like in order to get the one character that focused on life you had to like obtain five hearts in a run right, or something yeah. so it's very much tied together which is very nice let's move on to <laughs> our next game uh Oh boy. Um, a Valley Without Wind released April 24th, 2012. You can find it on PC, Mac, and Linux. This is the 569th most popular roguelike game with 484 total reviews, clocking in at the 82nd percentile of the of the category. Uh, in my notes, I have, so what kind of game is this? In my notes, I wrote down side-scrolling, asterisk, 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 platformer, asterisk, 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 RPG with base building, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Because whew, uh, this game is, is something else. Um, quick development history on this. This was developed by a very small studio. And small, we mean like between two and five people at any given time. Uh, Arkin Games, uh, who have a fascinating uh, kind of company history novella on their website. Uh, this this uh, studio was founded in 2009 by Chris McElliott Park. Um, and... Uh, they have they have developed 
some interesting and out of the box games, much to their credit, with varying financial success, which much to their credit for taking risks, but um, they developed a, a game called AI War, which is kind of a, yeah. an out of the box RTS game in 2009. I actually own AI War. I knew about that, or I was reading about them and I saw that they made AI War and I was like, oh, another game that was seems really cool. And I tried to play it. And I was like, this is so overwhelming. It's got <laughs> so much stuff going on. And I, yeah, I, I, I hit the end barrier to entry pretty hard and did not end up getting to the point where I could play it competently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and AI war was a big hit at the time. I think it, it was out of the box enough that uh, people really kind of shown a spotlight on Arkin at the time. So that that pushed them to to do something new and try a puzzle game called Tidalis or, or Tid, Tidalis? Tidalis? I'm just going to say Tidalis. Uh, and this one was out of the box, maybe like less commercially successful, um, but they didn't want to be kind of like type typecast as just developing RTS games. Like they de developed a bunch of expansions for AI War that were pretty, pretty well received. Um, and in 2012, uh, they wound up starting development with A Valley Without Wind. Uh, somehow, believe it or not, this game was somehow a commercial success. Uh, I think when we look back in hindsight, we're like, how on earth could that be? Um, but that wound up giving them enough financial freedom to start doing some other projects. Uh, they developed uh, a stay tuned future episode, Starward Rogue, which nearly bankrupted their company. Uh, and they had to lay off like almost all their staff. Uh, but they've developed like a bunch of different games of wildly different types and of middling success but they've always kind of i think tried to push the envelope and get out of the out of the um out of the box with their with their game design um not always successful but i think they wound up returning to tried and true formulas with ai war 2 very recently in 2020 um, that game seems to have been more kind of coming back to their their success model that people are more familiar with um this was so Valley Without Wind. The the development behind this game super interesting. Where originally this game was supposed to be sort of like a top down uh, force perspective game, kind of in a similar um, perspective manner as like Final Fantasy VI or like Chrono Chrono Trigger, where oh. you have that kind of like two D two D element with like things that are in like a three D like pseudo environment with this force perspective. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, this game i think uh was also originally supposed to be a tower defense game weirdly enough uh so the design was sort of in flux and sort of all over the place uh originally um and yeah i think the original development for this being that forced perspective meant that they did all of their modeling in 3d first and then put it like flattened it out into sort of a 2D environment, which was super challenging for them at the time. They wound up changing back to like a 2D profile, like side side scrolling design because unsurprisingly, it's a lot faster to develop that way uh, because with the 3D modeling engine, they were saying, uh, you know, you develop in 3D and then you just rotate to one axis and boom, there's your sprite. You don't have to worry about forcing everything to, to multiple axes. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing that there are a couple games that the the developer wound up saying that he was trying to go for with this game, which you know maybe sort of been could have been a little bit of hindsight was uh, like don't starve, 
And I think that like when I hear that, I'm like, okay, like that that makes a lot more sense for what this game maybe what it was trying to do. But being so far ahead of that was really kind of hard to learn those lessons because no one had really established that that kind of game design before. Um, I feel like it's not really like Don't Starve at all. Like the, <laughs> if I had to compare, I, if, I haven't played very much Noita, but that's the game that felt most similar to mm. me in terms mm. of just like really procedurally generated levels where you have almost too much flexibility in how you're running around doing them. Uh, like reading the 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 tool tips on how to use the map is already like like we have this oh, intricate mapping system <laughs> yeah. and like here's our like at the end our, our, like here's a paragraph of why we think this is the only appropriate way to map 3D spaces and like I kind of got where they were coming from in that like assuming that you had to map this strangely complicated 2D 3D landscape I guess this is the best way to do it, but it seems like a better way would just be make your landscape less complicated to fit the fact that you're doing something in 2D. This game, I think, is maybe the poster child for tell, don't show. And mm -hmm. I kind of get the same impression from the Arkin Games website where maybe they should have just written like a series of sci-fi novels instead of developing <laughs> a game. Because I think like, there, there's aspects of the game's writing that I think are interesting and everything else is just so bamboozingly over, over complicated and just, this is, this is the kind of game that if you dig up YouTube videos of it, this is the kind of thing that like distracted children would be playing on the TV in like a comp, you know, standard sitcom of like, oh, look at these games these kids are playing. And it's just like this unintelligible nonsense of like, oh, these kids need to go outside and you know play with a real ball or something. Like there it's, I this is a podcast. This is an auditory medium. I'm having an incredibly difficult time describing what this game looks like that doesn't involve the words clip art and <laughs> just like- I. Clip art's not quite right, but janky and yeah, it's it's uh, bad. It's <laughs> fragmented motion and just well, go ahead, go on. Like the art styles were not all the same. Yeah, like the background and the foreground are of different styles. Like when you jump, you always flip. It felt like, I mean, it really it felt like over ambitious. It was trying to be all games at the same time, and trying to be a platformer, trying to be uh, a RPG base build thing. It felt very shoehorned in. Uh, like, oh, we want to do platforming, but also you have to make your own platforms. Oh my god. The platform like, building. Oh, wow. Thanks for reminding me. That was... Yeah. So I, it, it, I feel like really both, actually all three of these games, um, but maybe to a lesser extent, the last two kind of remind me of all of my thoughts about procedural generation, which is I love the idea of procedurally generating maps and procedurally generating things, but there needs to be a purpose for it. Like, oh, 
unlimited maps. It's like, well, I don't actually need an unlimited amount of maps if they're all indistinguishably, they're they're indistinguishable from, from each other. Mm-hmm. Like there's no there's no defining feature of any of them. I literally could not have told you if this map was the same as the map that I played five minutes ago. Like, are are is the procedural generation really getting you anything? Yeah. Uh, and I felt like the combat difficulty was. I, I felt like in order, like I did a couple of the boss missions. It was like, okay, you either do some weird cheese strat, or you die. Or, or, or like very hurt uh so it's all about like putting your platform down in a very specific way so that you can just kind of barely peek over the edge and shoot down at something or, or jump around and the fact that none of the levels were designed by a human meant that you have to you have to scale your difficulty to assume that that's the that's the best way people are going to cheese their cheese their way through whatever encounter they're going to just, yeah. Yeah, and it's an important kind of element of procedural generation that I think people had needed some time to figure out where, yeah, in, in Valley Without Wind, and I think with Hack Slash Loot also, like you have a, an environment that is like randomly generated versus like pre-built, like prefabricated elements that are then randomly like connected to each other. And those kind of prefab elements help to kind of guide, you know, some kind of um, design uh, through line for either a level or helping to kind of guide your progression for a system. We'll see this in in like, you know, later episodes like Enter the Gungeon or even like you said with, um, I think it's pronounced Noita or Noita or... I, it's, yeah, I don't know how it's pronounced. <laughs> it's Finnish, so I'm not sure if anyone knows how to pronounce it. Um, but in that game, like similarly overwhelming with its size and scope, but feels a little more grounded in that um, there are there are like almost kind of like prefab like categories of areas that are then like randomly jumbled together. But yeah, um, just I mean, you mentioned Don't Starve earlier, which I think is probably as a wider audience that maybe people have played that game where it's like, yep, there's the the grasslands and you know that there's going to be a, a tunnel at some point and like everything's in there. It's just a matter of like kind of seeing how it all is connected. I want to quickly talk about the uh, the opening text crawl for this game, Holy mackerel, which yeah. I think kind of really sets the tone. Uh, We'll, we'll time to see how long it takes uh, for either one of you to start raising your hand before you get bored from me talking. Um, it is the year 888. Reality, Will has already, <laughs> you've already <laughs> tapped out. Uh, like all good games, you need a, God, I think this takes like two or three minutes to text scroll across. You don't have to read the whole thing before jumping in, but if you're sure interested in the story. Like, like, eh, you know, I've got, I got a paragraph gist. in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but reality has just shattered. Wind blast snow fields have covered the world of Environ for centuries. Citizens in this age, reliant on their magic-driven technology, now find the world an alien place that seeks to devour them. Only glyph bearers chosen by the enigmatic Ilari are able to venture forth into the wind-swept wilds. They discover shards of time and space have slammed haphazardly together. I I think that's what uh, the environment design is. Um, (laughs) 
Industrialized cities from the 5th century lie in just abandoned ruin, crammed next to Bronze Age towns from the 1st century of the ancient era in the shadow of robotic enclaves from a time after people. Most of, and this is about halfway okay, going. Jesus, like a, this is like the most AI generated like storyline I've ever heard. This feels like a back explanation for we couldn't we, we wanted to jam everything in. And so we had to figure out a reason like lore wise that you could have all of the things. You would think um, so. Um and I don't like I'm not tempted to uh, to test this hypothesis, but they say on Arkan Games' website, they say, most of our games are set in a large, internally consistent, quote, Arkanverse. It's a really rich sci-fi landscape that, fans, that spans a few trillion years of history and future, and which has yeah, ties to most of should have been. They definitely should have been just writing a science fiction series. Yeah. Um, that being said, like, I feel like we've been really just bashing on this game. I did not hate it as much as you guys did. Um, like, I liked it significantly better than Hack Slash Loot. Uh, I, I, like, just jumping around was kind of fun. And I appreciated the, the scope of what they were trying to do. And I, I mean, granted, I basically just ignored all of the lore <laughs> and just didn't pay attention to it. And it was like, I don't know. It seemed mo like it was diverting. It was it it like minus like the boss combat. I felt like you could just jump around and you could just mindlessly do stuff for a while. Yeah. Um, probably not what the game developers were looking for as like a play experience, but there's a certain element of like overwhelming zaniness to this game that almost like. Like the first like 20 minutes, I was just like, okay, yeah, like this is this is pretty insane. Like, let's see just how crazy it gets. Um, and I almost kind of wish it got like more crazy because you get some of these um well, I guess like to so gameplay-wise, you boot up the game and you you select from uh four heroes uh that you know once you die, you know, in standard roguelike fashion, you you pick another hero, um, all from the the ice age, but uh, picking them with various attributes of health, uh, attack power, and mana, um, and so, and I think they all start with the same power initially. But as you unlock things, you can get like crazy rocket turbo boosts, uh, like ice powers, and various uh, types of I don't know. There like, were big rocket things for a long time. Yeah, some of the some of the abilities in this game were just hilarious. With rock was best power. <laughs> Like literally throwing like almost screen-sized boulders at things that there's no like real weight to it, but just like the visual, almost like the visual gag of like, and every time that like you summon one of these powers, you do some sort of like wacky pose. Yeah, I, I back to the clip art, uh, it did feel a little bit like you were um, in a PowerPoint presentation and you summon this rock, you just kind of popped it onto existence and just kind of flew over. Uh, it, yeah. Having no weight to it feels like exactly the right phrase. Mm. Uh, the the rock did not. There was no sense of like, I'm doing a large effort to to use my magic to hurl a huge rock. It's like, oh, here's a rock. It goes summon, 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 rock. Form. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, gameplay wise, you start in a tutorial world that kind of I think does like a pretty decent job of like, explaining like, 
what the hell is going on? There's all this stuff. Hey, don't worry. Like the pause feature in this game is very helpful. So you can just kind of like, okay, let's stop and take a second and just kind of process what's happening. Uh, but you eventually wind up coming to a town that you, you build out some more infrastructure in and uh, you, you fight like, like comically oversized robot mini bosses all over the place that is just kind of adds to like the overwhelming factor of like okay i've just booted this game up i'm going in blind holy shit that's a huge robot it's shooting all sorts of crazy stuff at me ah uh, i gotta jump in between all these like fire blasts kind of a fun idea um and then as soon as i got to like some of the other realms i was just like ah you know i don't know there's just so much stuff to keep track of it's it's like the exact opposite of hack slash loot in that sense where like that game was was very minimalistic this is very maximalistic yeah it had a lot of stuff that you could try to do um and they were like you you have to love a game where there's a building in the town that's just like what should you be doing right now and you're basically just going to big old monocrystal and, and it's just like hey, I'm overwhelmed in the world, in quotes. Like, how about you magically tell me what I should do? It's like, yeah, you, 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 they knew that they were going to need something to like give you priorities. Um, but even then it was still hard to know what you should be attempting to do. Like you just go out on the map and do random missions and get rewards, but it did not feel like Despite having so many things, it did not feel like I had a whole lot of agency in terms of building things out. Really just like you get what you get from these rewards. And maybe maybe I just did not play it for a long enough time, but well, how long did you how long did you play? I don't know, three or four hours. Okay. I think that's four hours longer or three hours longer than I could physically sustain playing. Right. No, I'm looking at my playtime right now, and uh, so I and I feel disgusted that I can't even real truly evaluate it beyond its surface level because I have 39 no, minutes. I just mind. couldn't take it. It was. <laughs> never mind. I, I only have two hours into it, but I. It felt like four hours. I bet though. Yeah. I honestly, I almost went back to play it the next day, but I needed to to get through my get through my games. But. Uh, well, speaking of getting through our games, let's uh, let's mm, talk about right. our last uh, last game for the episode today. Pineapple Smash Crew, released February second, twenty twelve, uh, PC only exclusive. I uh, can only find it on PC. This is uh, shockingly the the most indie out of all of these. Uh, the one thousand and fifty ninth most popular roguelike with only one hundred and nineteen reviews, cranking in at a hot sixty seventh percentile in the in the category. Uh, and this is a a very um i was almost gonna say pixel pixely but it's not pixely um it is a uh twin stick shooter in it's a sense. 19 late 1990s arcade graphics yeah i think that's accurate like n64 like large it's 3d but with very not not very many uh polygons you just i think you really hit hit it on the head there that this would be such a great n64 game Oh yeah, this shit. I would have loved this. <laughs> and honestly, I, I'm just go ahead and say it, I liked this game. Yeah. What? What? I thought I thought this game was pretty. I thought good. it was fun. I might uh, play it in the future. 
So, it is so the, it's the best of the three, to be sure, but of the three, I mean, uh, of garbage. I mean, sorry, no offense out there again. Well, well like, let's real quick jump into jump into a quick dev history here. So right, this right. was this was developed by uh, Rich Edwards in uh, Newcastle, England, um, our second uh, English dev of the day. Uh, and uh, from an early age, he wanted to to make video games. Uh, he was really kind of just sketching out map ideas and characters from things like Sonic and the game Cannon Fodder or Desert Strike and like Streets of Rage. Uh, I think, but I've I've probably done the exact same thing in middle school. Um, but he took more of an interest in sort of the art side, uh, and he wound up joining a mid-sized game company in Newcastle and wound up getting uh, familiarized with this uh, engine called the Quest 3D engine uh, that was. Uh, hilariously used a lot in like architecture visualization, but also a little bit for game design, which I thought was very interesting. Um, wound up using a lot of uh, Maya at the time for 3D work in Photoshop. Um, and he had looked into using Unity for uh, Mac and Linux support. Um, would have loved to have Blender back in the day, I'm sure. But uh, Unity, I think at this time was still still in its infancy. So I think, you know, it would make sense at the time to stay with the, the devil you know for engine work. And try to try to get it to work in there. Um, he says in a quote, uh, "I found out about a business development scheme in Middlesbrough, and uh, called Digital City Fellowship that gives small grants to help startups. And luckily made it through the application process by showing them some game prototypes uh, he'd made and talking about his ideas for Pineapple Smash Crew. Uh, he wound up taking uh, this this game to the indie game section." of uh, EGX, which I think is a, a game convention. Um, and uh, he he had a, a connect there, David Hayward, uh, who helped select that for the show. And the, the gaming magazine Rock, Paper, Shotgun wound up awarding Pineapple Smash Crew as their favorite game. Um, David Hayward, his connect uh, encouraged Rich Edwards, the developer, to go to the uh, Counter-Strike Global Offensive booth, which was like just launching at that time way back when if you can imagine uh and mentioned to the to the reps there that hey you know i have this indie game it just won an award uh how would i go about getting this thing out on steam uh and they wound up you know getting him connected and getting him uh help set up on the on the platform which was super cool um this is another game that uh that you can see see clear inspiration from uh games that he was really inspired by called cannon fodder uh, and the Sega Master System game called Game Ground, uh, which have very similar kind of um, game uh, flows and designs to them where you're kind of running around these, these environments and just blowing stuff up. Um, but interestingly, he said he was also very inspired by the billiards game or the part of the game Pool uh, for just having stuff like bop around corners and uh, that kind of you know dynamic um, uh, bouncing physics objects, he said, which I think you can kind of see a lot of inspiration from here. Uh, he said in a quote, uh, if you're solo, uh, I'd try, oh, for, in terms of like developing games, he he has a very uh, good quote here. If if you're a solo game developer, I'd say try to get in a position where you're self-sustaining, either with a day job or working evenings slash weekends, or if you can get any kind of business grant um, or arts scheme, or if you're lucky enough just to be living with parents, uh, but in some situation for when time pressure uh, to complete your project isn't crushing because you need to feel free to explore ideas and prototypes before committing on a direction, um, early access wasn't really a thing back in this time. Um, and when he started, he he would say that that was a good way to help kind of sustain development and grow, grow a community. Um, 
Rich Edwards nowadays does uh, freelance uh, illustration, uh, and you can find him at Twitter at Rich Make Game. Uh, until for however many days Twitter is left, I don't know if it's going to outlast the uh, the new head of lettuce, but uh, but we shall see. Story wise, in this game, I think there's a story. Uh, it seemed kind of interesting. There's elements you where you can a mothership go... eventually. Yeah. And I was really motivated to try to figure out like, ooh, what's what's like the lore behind this? Um, and this was something that it was, it seems a little ancillary. I don't think it's really critical not, for the yeah, game. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's really a, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's a game that is heavily based off of story. No, but the idea here is that um, you boot this game up, you are pineapples, armored pineapples, question mark. I'm not quite sure where the pineapple bit comes they're not, from. They're not pineapples. At some point, they comment about how they would like to eat pineapples or something along those lines, like just in the text that randomly displays. So I'm pretty sure I mean, they're just some kind of a creature that's yeah. got two arms and two legs and armor. Uh, some like little yellow-headed Simpsons character maybe uh, in a giant suit of armor, which I think is kind of a fun character design. And you have um, four of these... Uh, I'm just going to call them pineapples because I like the idea that they are sentient pineapples in suits of armor. But you have machine guns. You're running around um, uh, an environment that's like a spaceship uh, filled with bugs and things that explode. And your goal is to go to some room that is labeled target on your mini-map. You go in there and you know your mission objectives can range from uh, blowing up crates to get little little green blobs that are data cubes or something it doesn't really matter um or blowing up a big enemy and once you've done that you know dust your hands off you're done with that level you warp out and you your crew upgrades depending on how many blue little experience points you gain uh which what gives you, you little upgrades yeah well it gives you it gives you a little bit of armor i think which helps but i don't know i didn't really see Was there that actual there's... armor yeah, like as far as I can you could buy hats, and the hats did absolutely nothing. No, when your when your people leveled up, they they looked, they got bulkier, and they got like better looking armor. No, oh, okay, so they yeah, didn't it like... give you any stats on like if your <clears throat> guy was better, and you got better grenades. You could mm. you had some yeah, that the level gives stuff. you another grenade. I don't know if it's better. I'm, honestly, if I could only have just the basic grenade, I feel like that would have been better because then you just kind of diversify your pool of available grenades to shitty grenades eventually. But I guess it depends on your play style. There's a, there's a lot of kind of, I think, interestingly designed power-ups in this game where it, it felt like pretty, pretty useful. It felt like everything kind of had their own use. You have like rockets, you have lasers, you have uh, like healing beacons, you have uh, like specific power-ups that like fear enemies away from you or like quad damage things. Um which I thought was was a good kind of element of like tactical usefulness. I'm like, okay, I got to switch to this guy to use this vortex thing and collect everyone up and then shoot the rocket at them to blow them up. Uh, which as the as the game progresses, I think becomes a lot more necessary. And I wound up just using like these laser things that shoot through walls a whole lot. But that's exactly what I mean. But yeah, I think that like this game had a pretty decent amount of. Um, weapon variety a pretty decent amount of like enemy variety between like i think there was like zombies on on some of these spaceships there's uh like little arachnids and uh robots and kind of everything in between um 
but I wish that the, that the, uh, the boss design here was a little more varied. Yeah. When you were talking about early access and how they didn't have early access then, this really does feel to me like a very good early access game. Um, I, so I'm, I looked at my stats, I played it for an hour and I had like genuinely had a good time playing for an hour. I think this would be an absolutely amazing arcade game, like physical in-person arcade, like at a barcade type thing. It would be a great game for that. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if I could get, like I could probably get another hour out of it of like true enjoyment. And then as far as I can tell, that's basically just the same boss every level, which. Yeah, and they get, um, they get more armored as you go along through the story, which I don't know, like, I guess presents more of a challenge, but I just kind of, kind of found it more annoying where you just have to like shoot between like the weak spots of the armor and it just takes longer. Yeah, it just takes longer. Um, it didn't seem like the the usefulness of the tools as as you learn them and like how to use those to kind of like defeat enemies and stuff really came into play that much. With, right, or yeah. with the bosses specifically. I think that more so like, with like- the Yeah, you get levels. like much better at like, okay, bouncing stuff around corners, like how to use these grenades. And then you get to the end and you're fighting this boss and it's just a circle, a giant circle robot <laughs> in a large open room, which is nothing like any of the other areas. And you just kind of have to blast at it for a long time. So it's, you're, you're, you're building up your, your clearing corner skills and then none of them are in any way used for the boss room. Yeah. What would you say uh, is the primary source of fun for this game? I think uh, this is another game that I think like stuff. <laughs> it kind stuff. of, yeah, like does what it says on the tins. You are pineapples, you're a crew and you smash stuff. That's it. I think like my, like, yeah, I, I kind of peaked with my enjoyment of it. Like, yeah, right about like the hour level. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like a, like a peak and then sharp decline. It was more kind of like a peak and then like a gradual decline of like, I've kind of felt like sunk cost fallacy a little bit because I'm like, I gotta, I gotta know what the story here is. Uh, I gotta know like what the end boss is because as you go through the game, you'll find uh, these little consoles that give you uh, encyclopedia, uh, Weekarctica entries uh, that like have like interesting little lore tidbits that you know don't really have much impact in the game at all. But I believe those the more consoles that you access, the more it gives you um, like quote unquote, like progress or like data yeah, points. Progress towards the, the mothership. Yeah. So. Yeah. Which is the final boss, which <laughs> uh, spoiler alert and super bummer was just literally another like Roomba style giant <laughs> tank thing, okay. uh, which I was super you. bummed by. Cause I, at, at about at the hour mark where I'm like, I've absorbed all the novelty out of this game. Yeah, Scott, do I continue on? Because I see I'm, I've got this degree of progress. So I could uh, like double or triple my time. And No, no. I think like this is a game. I think, yeah, Colin hit it on the head. Uh, this would be a great physical arcade game where you could either like solo, you're controlling like the squad yourself and kind of like switching back and forth between them. Or if you had four people going simultaneously. Um, I will call out though, anytime that a game uses a... Um, a total recall quote because as your as your little crew are running around you're saying like you know some uh, like little action movie quips one of them is you think this is the real quade it is <laughs> which i had to i just had to pause and just give a just a slow clap for any kind of uh 
any kind of action movie, especially Arnold references in these games. Um, but yeah, I think like if this was like a high score chaser or yeah, something along those I, I lines. I feel like I this one was really close to being a really good small game. Um, so we've been playing off Scott's Steam account. Uh, so I didn't actually buy this game. I just looked it up though. It's $10 if you're going to buy it by itself. And that feels like probably more money than I would be willing to pay for it. This feels like a two and a half dollar game because you're going to get like a good hour or two of fun out of it. Absolutely worth two and a half bucks, maybe even five bucks Yeah. Uh, for, from my perspective. But $10 feels like you should get more than what you got. And I think to some degree, developers have to either set like sales schedules or there's some kind of thing that requires developers to say like, oh, I'm going to set this game on sale to be X, X percent off every so often or whatever. <clears throat> well, except for Factorio, um, which <laughs> realizes yeah, I, their value. And I don't know that the, uh, I don't know that this, this is on the same even spectrum as Factorio, but yeah, I think no, I'm just a... saying that the, that level that you don't necessarily need to have uh, like the uh, um, uh, periods of discount. I mean, Arizona iced tea. Yep. I mean, like they're Costco hot dogs. They're well, Costco hot dogs can't go on sale because they're literally losing money on every sale. Right. Uh, well, I mean, they could still go on sale, but is their lost leader? At a certain still... point, they should probably just give away their food for free. They <laughs> wouldn't lose more money. Not really. Anyway, um, I think this is this is the kind of game that's going for a different kind of audience or something like Factorio, though. Like yeah. I could see booting this up. Maybe not this exact game, but a game with mildly more content, a little bit more in terms of variability with upgrades. Like you could upgrade all of the grenades and the rockets and stuff, but you still have the same basic gun the whole time. And I was a little disappointed that you never got, uh, I mean, just the standard, like, oh, instead of just firing straight, now it's firing the three that spread out, or like, oh, now it fires slower, but longer, but more powerful. It it was surprising to me that you never upgraded that. Um, it seems like they focused all of their upgrade efforts on these like grenade power-up one-time use things. Um, but I could see a game that's substantially the same as this with a couple of tweaks being able to be like, hey, you know, once a month you come back, you play an hour. And you're just like, cool, fun. Just get in a weird flow state. Shoot and I will- stuff. I will call out that the uh, the soundtrack to this game is pretty is pretty bumping. I think the, yeah, I like uh, the sound. The soundtrack music. for this was pretty great. It was uh, it's actually the only the only game that we've played so far that I actually genuinely liked the soundtrack. Uh, I felt uh, it felt like it perfectly fit the like urgency of the game. Yeah. So. Well, let's move on to our rankings. Uh, each episode, we we do our due data diligence by ranking all of our games and uh, compiling Google Sheets together to to get the most authoritative data driven list of of the best games of the uh, the cream of the cream, the top of the uh, of the roguelikes. Um, for me, I'm putting uh, Pineapple Spash Crew at my new number three game. Uh, so behind Dungeons of Dreadmore, and I'm gonna put Hackslash Loot just behind that. Uh, and maybe a little bit of controversy. I'm going to put Hackslash Loot above Binding of Isaac, the uh, the original 2011 one. 
uh, and then I'm going to dump a Valley Without Wind at the bottom. Uh, I, I had a lot of fun playing Pineapple Smash Crew. Uh, I think there's a lot of positives, but um, I think like, yeah, if it was just like an arcade game or if there was some arcade game that was like this, um, I could see busting this out for like a video game party or something and be like, oh, you know, we should play this until we all die or something. Um, and the music helps helps it out a lot. I think uh, there's a lot of good like repo value here. Hackslash loot, I can appreciate what it was going for. For me, it just felt like way too random and just like I didn't have enough control over, over what I wanted to do there. Um, but I think that it is, it's more worth checking out than Binding of Isaac now because Binding of Isaac Rebirth just chaos dunks on top of the original 2011 version of it that there's there's for me no reason to go back to original binding of isaac um but for a valley without wind i think like this was something that i i tried really really hard to just like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna do it i'm gonna buckle down i'm gonna sit down and i'm gonna try to read through this opening text crawl and it was just like doing homework and uh like just felt like such a slog um i'm happy that arkin games took the risk and it was a commercial success for them but oh boy i will not be playing a valley without wind 2 which is the only way that you can buy this game is with like the double pack bundle which i thought was kind of i don't know i don't know how i feel about that but um i don't i don't know that uh yeah that that's really going to draw me into that second one there i will uh briefly call out with a valley without wind if you want to get a good uh grasp on like the total gameplay of it uh youtuber uh etherville e-t-h-e-r-v-i-l has a uh good youtube playlist series on like doing all of the dirty work of playing this game so i don't have to uh and going through at least like one one major boss fight to to clear up a continent so if you're interested in seeing how this game plays out to that point by all means go and go and check his stuff out that helped me out a lot with just being like oh my god i don't know if i can boot this game up again uh yeah i mean i feel like i saw maybe the potential of a valley without i appreciated the the raw ambition um i can imagine myself making a valley without wind uh and being like i want to do it all and slowly pulling back and being like i can't do it all um so i my uh i have hack slash loot as my new lowest game at number five uh because i i didn't rank binding Isaac the original because i didn't play it um right above that i have valley without wind and then um pineapple smash crew is dethroned or d pushed down uh dungeons and dreadmore is now my number two game wow I liked it. I thought it was a fun game. I mean, granted, I got an hour out of it, but I had an hour of good fun out of it. <laughs> and you know what? That's that's an hour. Anytime that you're having good fun for an hour, even if you're like, okay, I'm done with this. I it think took that's me, well worth it. it took me one, 30 seconds to understand how this game worked. I got 59 minutes of fun out of it. And I can put it down and be like, great. I don't feel compelled to, I don't feel like I missed out. Like, yeah. Dungeons of Dreadmore or some of these other games, I feel like I put work in to understand what's going on. And then I thought a lot and that's good for many games, but sometimes it's nice to just shoot some stuff 
have some fun shooting stuff. This this is uh, this is quite the opinion, Colin. Um, yeah, yeah, you you can pick up anything really and do it for an hour and do it just kind of mindless shooting of things or whatever. But like, oh, but this is the synergies in games. You know, some of the core game loop mechanics need to be super strong. Dungeon of you're you're trying to tell me right now that Pineapple Smash Crew is better than Dungeons of Dreadmore. I and, and I have my problems. And you are. <laughs> incredible because like that game there's there's actual like synergies between the classes between the between the like um the actual options you select how you take on battles with the uh, pineapple smasher you're just walking into a space aiming shooting with left click and then eventually right clicking on you know with one of your four different types of grenades well that's real, like saying that's like saying uh i mean you like both darts and chess that's like saying darts is a bad game because there's no uh like how do you calculate sent upon loss for darts it's like they're different they're different games right right no, darts okay right i i think fun is it's three things it's it's uh uh accuracy it's timing and a judgment those are the three atomic particles of fun and so joseph so, so dredgemore has judgment and neither of the other two and pineapple smash crew has timing and accuracy. timing does it does it even really have that i mean like yeah grenade timing managing to like bounce stuff around corners i guess that that didn't feel like a much of a skill or, or timing thing it was just like mostly just a hold gun at person and then <laughs> occasionally right click and then hopefully you have the right grenade selected otherwise you're gonna teleport into them I'd... pineapple smash crew felt mm. like eating a bag of potato chips um and dungeons of dreadmore felt like going to the gym like I, you know, you get you get stuff out of it at the end. And you might be a better person for it at the end. <laughs> I don't know about that. But, but I enjoyed that bag of chips right now. Gonna get immediately. I think I think it also has to do with the fact that you played Dungeons and Dreadmore for like not. I, I think I put like almost ten hours into that game. So, sure, yeah. maybe yeah, maybe I just I only got to the workout phase and I didn't get to the part where I looked good. I, and I'm comparing it to a delicious bag of nacho uh, cheese Doritos. <laughs> My fingers are greasy and covered in cheese dust, and I'm like so satisfied. Versus the other time, I'm just sweaty. Well, I'm gonna just just in summary, I'm gonna agree with. I think I'm just looking at our charts right now of everything lining up, and I, I'm I'm agreeing with uh, Scott. It looks like overall, um, I did not actually play by the original binding advice, so I have an NA value there, and I think Colin does too. So, um, but everything else um lines up with. Binding of uh, Isaac Rebirth, that's our best. We got Dungeons of Dreadmore, and at the very bottom here, we got a value without win. That was just terrible, and then. Uh, just above that, hack slash and loot. And I did say, I mean, Pineapple Smasher was the best of the three we played today, or in this between the episodes. Um, but um, I'm expecting that one to stay at the bottom as we play more games. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the rankings evolve over time. I'm I'm curious to watch that standard deviation column to see what games we disagree on the most, uh, and which ones maybe we agree on the most. But uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, that wraps up uh, our episode here on our, our first uh, bundle of games with Hack Slash Loot, uh, Valley Without Wind, and Pineapple Smash Crew. Uh, next time, we're talking about another episode bundle of some uh, smaller games, including Cargo Commander, Realm of the Mad God, and Din's Curse. So keep an eye out for uh, for those ones that, uh, that we got coming up in the hopper. Uh, uh grogpodzone at gmail.com if you have uh some corrections that you want to send in to us we love uh 
uh, engagement baiting people. Uh, so we'll intentionally get stuff wrong just to make sure that you're you're writing in emails and uh, and engaging with the podcast. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, that about does it. Any final thoughts about our games for today? I'm looking forward to the next set. <laughs> Don't say that much. <laughs> You I don't know, I like playing on the Smash Group. I don't know, <laughs> come at me. All right, we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone.